Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is a labor of love. You can get the ad-free version as well as access to our live events, Discord server, and monthly Team Human salons by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to flip the script on our social program, to favor the stuff of the soul, to imagine a politics based less on material wealth than the ineffable stuff of human flourishing. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, former diplomat and current anarchist, Carney Ross. It's not a universalist utopia. Each of us can create our own, you know, and I think what anarchists reject is universalist utopias of me imposing my design on you and everybody else. It's just my design. It's my imagination of what could be better. And I bring that to you humbly and honestly and say, let's co-create utopia that blends yours with mine. What would that look like? Carney's going to introduce us to an anarchist's vision of economic well-being. It's time to intervene on our own and each other's behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I have been a fan of Carney Ross, the disillusioned diplomat-turned-anarchist organizer since I was introduced to his work during Occupy Wall Street. He's the guy who gave secret evidence to a British inquiry into the Iraq war, then quit and founded a democracy and political movement advisory called Independent Diplomat. His book, The Leaderless Revolution, explains the fundamental forces driving everything from Occupy Wall Street to Extinction Rebellion and is essential reading for anyone in the bottom-up change-making world. So when I got an email from Carney a few weeks ago asking if I'd speak with him about a new public banking project he's working on, of course I accepted. We ended up having a conversation about the anarchist's approach to governance and social good before getting more specific about how to wrest banking from the bankers. I'm really glad I recorded it because uh, now I can share it with you. So here's me and Carney Ross uh, speaking about, well, You'll find out. So, hey, I'm trying to think of the last time because we were probably on a panel about something, but... Yeah. (laughs) We did the Personal Democracy Forum at the same time, I think. Oh, right. You know, back in those happy, halcyon days where people believed in the internet and that it would improve politics rather than destroy it. Right. Well, you wrote your book. Um, what was the book that I always considered your Occupy book? But now I think it actually came out before Occupy. It did. On, um, yeah. It did. The Leaderless Revolution, right? That's right. That's right. I can't claim it predicted Occupy, but you know, it was part of the same vein. 
Oh, that's better. Right. So it wasn't about Occupy, predicted Occupy. But I mean, for people who don't know, you were originally like in government. You weren't like a parliament member, but you were uh, involved, right? In, in British parliament somehow? I was a British diplomat. I worked for the Foreign Service. I served in various capacities, including speechwriter for the Foreign Secretary. Latterly, I was in the UK delegation to the UN covering the Middle East, and in particular Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, which is why I'm no longer a British diplomat, because I resigned after giving secret evidence to the first official inquiry into the Iraq war. And my evidence said, as we all know now, that the government lied, ignored available alternatives to war, etc., etc. But yeah, I was in the heart of the system and have now abandoned that system and come to believe something very other than that system. Right. You and some other people in that system were in the system with good intentions. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, good intentions, <laughs> apart from my own careerist ambitions, you know, I think most people in government are in there to do what they think is good, but I think they often end up subverted that their good intentions are used for ill because that's the nature of government. And particularly in the capitalistic system, I think, you know, the two things, government and capital capitalism, reinforce each other to produce bad outcomes. Right. I mean, because in some ways, capitalism was, I mean, at least in terms of, as my work sees it, capitalism was, if not an invention of government, it was the original partnership that allowed late medieval monarchies to even come into existence. You know, it's what allowed us to move from feudalism to nation states was the marriage of royalty to chartered monopolies, you know, which is kind of what set it in motion, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I think the critical relationship between government and capitalism is is the enforcement of property rights, that property is embodied in law or the right to property is embodied in law and people, the acquisition of property is protected by law. So, you know, what happened was what was once in the commons was appropriated by private owners of different kinds, landlords, uh, feudal lords, royalty, and became private property. And that was, in a way, the initiation of the current economic system, which people like me think we now need to reverse to put more back in the commons and less in private ownership. It's interesting. Yeah, because I... I had this Zoom call with a guy, what's his name? Nouriel Rubini. Mm -hmm. He was the uh, Dr. Doom, I guess they called him, then NYU economics or business professor, I guess, who predicted the uh, uh, mortgage crisis or the, the 2007 crash. And now he's got a mutual fund of some kind or a, an investment scheme with him and a guy named Parag something, uh, another kind of globalist Parakana. thinker. He's a friend of mine, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know he had a mutual fund with Nero Rabini. That's news to me. Yeah. Oh, this giant thing. Well, it's this yeah. big investment thing, uh, this company. And it's really kind of a, an apocalypse investment thing. And they're investing in three things. And I didn't understand it quite until you were just talking, which is why I bring it up. They, they show all the global warming maps and how everything's going to go away and from the you know, World Trade or the World Bank, the predictions of the temperatures and how you, you can get as far as Buffalo, New York by 2030, but then by 2050, you'll have to be up at Winnipeg and all. So the way you invest for that, according to them, is that you invest in three things, gold, U.S. treasuries, and land in mm -hmm. Siberia and like Northern Canada, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why those three things work together, well, gold is gold, but if you're going to buy land, then you have to have the belief that there's going to be some government to protect your ownership of that land. Mm -hmm. And right, and so as long as you're doing that, you might as well invest in U.S. treasuries because you're supporting the government that's going to protect the land that you've Yes. You said you've bought. Yes. And th there is no ungoverned land, although I think there's a small pocket between Ethiopia or Eritrea or something that actually isn't mm. governed. And of course, the deep oceans are not governed, but every bit of dry land is governed. 
there's not a piece of it that mm. isn't. So I guess it's a wise investment. I mean, I think the relationship between <laughs> land and government is fundamental. As I was saying, property and government are fundamental. Right. They reinforce each other. And I think this is one of the myths of free market economics, that economics exists in a kind of vacuum. You know, free, the free market exists in a kind of vacuum when, in fact, it wholly relies on coercive enforcement by the government. Right. And then land isn't then just the the property that they're fighting for, but land is where all of the harm gets externalized as well. You know, it's well, it's like the children of a divorce. You know, <laughs> kind of to a degree. But the things that are where most of the externalities are causing damage are things that are not owned, and arguably that's part of the problem. It's things like the climate and biodiversity and the oceans, which are being you know, the global commons, one might argue, are being dramatically damaged mm. by the depredations of free market economics, by the externalities of the neoclassical model. And those things are not protected, and arguably they should be. And governments are sort of struggling to, in different ways, in different UN forums, to get on top of the protection of, of those global commons and by and large. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Large failing. Well, it's because most of them feel that the way to protect them then is, well, let's make a market out of air and a market out of water or a market out of the oceans. Well, actually, they're not. I mean, I suppose you could argue that carbon markets are that, but those are generally only a small part of the efforts to protect the climate, for instance, protect the atmosphere, which are largely based on normative targets for decarbonisation, which governments are then supposed to impose policy to reach those targets, which are not necessarily market related. I mean, there are some market trends which are going in the right direction for decarbonisation, such as the reduction in the price of renewables. But in other ways, as the IRA has demonstrated in the US, non-market policy, you could call it that, such as subsidies and regulation are necessary to decarbonise. So it's not market mechanisms that are purely wholly being relied on. God, God help us if they were. I don't think they would work. Yeah. And it's interesting. So then you you eventually, I don't know if came upon is the right word, but you came upon anarchism as a better prospect. And it's inter interesting because I did come upon anarchy or anarchism. It sounds ridiculous. I had friends who were in um, Alcoholics Anonymous and I started to go to meetings with them and found something wonderful at those meetings, even though I'm not an alcoholic myself, but the solidarity and the rapport and the fraternity. And then, because I'm sitting there just tripping out while I'm listening and thinking about the organization, I learn that Bill W. and the whole thing, it was set up, he was an anarchist. And it's an anarchist organization in that there are all of these tiny local chapters, each you know following a kind of a rule set, but localizing what they're doing to themselves. And it just... It works. There's no central authority. There's no thing. And you realize, oh, so people acting together in goodwill can create these giant, mutually supportive networks. And it was like, oh, well, this is, it was just a, an interesting model. And then to discover, you know, to look at things like Occupy and other lateral or horizontally structured movements, I thought, oh, there's actually something here. And I'm wondering, sort of what was your, how did you kind of discover anarchism? And maybe for people who aren't really familiar with it, is anything other than, you know, chaos? How would you describe anarchism? Gosh, well, my own journey started with disillusionment from the current system, which was triggered by the Iraq war, but had begun before where I saw the 
outputs of the system in terms of inequality, you know, actual malnutrition and starvation in places like New York City, as well as, you know, the climate disaster as clear indications that the system was not was not working. So what would be the alternative? And that was a very eclectic, open exploration for me. I really had a you know, really open mind about what the answer could be. And through various avenues, I sort of came to the same conclusion. One was what is most important to us as human beings. And I concluded that, you know, reading Wittgenstein, amongst other things, I don't want to sound pretentious, but he was one of the people who really influenced me, the, mm-hmm. the immaterial and ineffable, the stuff of the soul, if you like, is what's most important to us as human beings. And that is not what neoclassical economics and capitalism is about, which is about material consumption and acquisition as the goal of humanity. And I thought about what would be a politics that centered this ineffable stuff as the aim of society, as the goal of human flourishing. And anarchism actually is the only political philosophy that offers that because it offers true agency for us to discover our own path through life without authority or other people coercing us to do other things. And, you know, that is the nature of power, is making people do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And the heart of anarchism, to answer the second part of your question, is the rejection of power, is there should be no coercion, there should be no hierarchy, people should be free to do what they want to do, to discover their own path through life, the best way for them to flourish, and the only way to do that is through mutual cooperation that is voluntary and non-coercive. And if you want a simple definition of anarchism, it is that. I mean, it it does range from the pure libertarianism of individualism, of saying the individual can do whatever the hell they like. I don't personally (laughs) believe that. That to me is not anarchism. The anarchism I believe in is, is a much gentler, if you like, philosophy of communal cooperation, of mutual aid, a bit like your Alcoholics Anonymous example of of people mutually coming together to support one another, but also to discuss what is most at stake, you know, be it property relations or, you know, what to do about their schools or hospitals, that they discuss these things together where every stakeholder has a say and an equal say, and that that is the better way to govern ourselves and the better way to manage the planet, but also to really provide for true human flourishing. So you still have government, You still have some administration. Yes, you do. Complex societies need organization. It's not just chaos and anarchy in that pejorative sense of what anarchy means. No, I mean, I I believe in what Murray Bookchin, the political philosopher, talked about of essentially confederal organization, that we form institutions, but these institutions have to satisfy various conditions. They have to be voluntary, they have to be temporary, and people have to participate in them equally. And if they are representative of broader populations, then those populations must repeatedly consent to the decisions of those institutions. So it's it's not a free-for-all. No, it is organized. That's my kind of anarchism. And it's interesting because um, there were these, uh, maybe it's a little arcane, but in America, certainly in New York, from what I know, we used to have these things called authorities. And an authority was like a corporation, but they were temporary. So you would create an authority. We need a bridge over the Hudson River. So you create like a corporation or an authority that ex- that is put into place to organize and fund the creation of the bridge. And when the bridge is done, maybe some skeleton crew stays behind to manage the thing, but it's over. It's done. You know, so when you when you say that they're temporary, I, I realize, you know, that shouldn't be a problem. It should be the goal. But what happens instead is they become permanent and then try to find excuses to keep their thing in place. Yes. And, and Robert Moses ends up running them. I mean, that's, uh, you know, the very right. an- antithesis of, of what anarchism is about. I mean, anarchist theory of ins- of organizations is exactly that. They should be temporary, that organizations should exist to fulfill a particular purpose and then be disbanded. And of course, what happens is that organizations develop their own set of private interests above all for their own self-perpetuation. So, you know, organizations' true interests are not 
what they claim to be. They're not to build a bridge. They are to perpetuate themselves and fulfill the interests of their participants, the people who work there. So, you know, whenever you look at any organization from a government to a corporation to a trade union, always remember that their true purposes are in fact concealed. The the thing they are ostensibly about is generally not what they're actually about. Um, not least because they have extended their existence in order to fulfill these secret purposes. So anarchists are basically hostile to institutions only unless they are truly temporary, unless they are dissolved when they fulfill their purposes, unless they're truly transparent and and participatory. Right. I mean, and, and I think people are becoming, I'm hoping, as I always did, that the digital age helps people see this more clearly. Because now that they see that, oh, look at this app I've put in my phone that says it does this, but obviously its real purpose and profit model is that. It helps people learn that, oh, things are not what they look like. So for me, once I learned that about computers, I was able to look at money and say, oh, People think, you know, I've been told that money is doing this and allowing me to spend, but money's actually doing that and drawing, mm-hmm. you know, and controlling me. And so mm-hmm. that it opens the a different way of speculating about what's happening. And that was what, what your work has been so valuable for me. Things like Leaderless Revolution was like, you help people kind of flip the script or see behind, see behind the curtain or do sort of denaturalize power, mm-hmm. if you will. It's kind of Foucault meets Wittgenstein, if you will, because <laughs> you denaturalize the power. But once you do that, it unleashes the sort of creative spiritual or what I'm calling the team human energy, the more mm-hmm. subtle systems of meaning that we create together. And that's what life is actually about. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when I heard that you got interested or are now interested in public banks, it was very, it it means, oh my, oh my. So I need to take another look because I'm, you know, I've been thinking about money systems for a long time and, and alternative currencies and the way all these things work and got very involved with the, um, credit union, what the lack of credit union movement really, but got involved with credit unions, basically going to different credit unions and doing lectures there, trying to remind the staff and executives of credit unions what credit unions are. Mm-hmm. Right? These people, they think that credit unions are basically crippled nonprofit banks. And I'm telling them, no, that's not what you are. You have a different model. You're about circulating value through a community, not extract, you're not a bank, you're this. And even the ones who understand that find out that credit unions are so overregulated by the regular banking industry that they have to charge more interest on on their loans. They get money at a higher rate of interest. And when I tell them, oh, what you have to do is instead of thinking of your clients and uh, savers as as people and union members, you have to think of them as small businesses. That everyone is an and they go, well, we can't think of them as small businesses because by law only ten percent of our customers are allowed to be businesses at all. Mm. I was like, okay, so. So it's not your model that's broken. It's the regulations. You have to fight against those. Mm-hmm. They go, well, we can't fight against those regulations. We don't have any power. And the banks have more power. So I kind of gave up. And so that's why I'm interested in what what exactly is a public bank and how how are you thinking about it? And how is it how has it become sort of the thing that you want to try to make work? Well, I became interested in the financial system during Occupy, in fact, which we were talking about. And I set up a financial sort of investigation working group, which involved a lot of Wall Street people, actually disillusioned mm. Wall Street people who'd walked by Zuccotti Park and wondering what Occupy was about. And we tried to set up a cooperative. In fact, we did set up a cooperative bank. We tried to launch a prepaid card that would be essentially a bank account for the many millions of unbanked people in America. And we came very close to launching it. We didn't raise the money in time, but also we found that the regulation was against us, which precisely tallies with what you were saying about credit unions, is that the for-profit banks essentially have co-opted the legislative system. Their lobbyists essentially, not essentially, they actually write the legislation for banking. You know, you can read in the New York Times how financial services lobbyists literally give text to the congressman in the committee who produce the legislation. So they own the legislation. And surprise, surprise, that legislation favours the for-profit banks, protects their oligopolistic control of the market, and makes it very, very difficult to offer cooperative or credit cooperative alternatives, mutuals, credit unions, whatever you want to call them. So 
what is the answer? And I'm still exploring that. I don't claim to have an answer. You know, my general investigation is what would it take to recapture the money commons to give us control over this thing that makes us feel controlled? Hmm. Money, we have no agency over it. For most of us, it's a torment, a burden. How do we recapture some kind of control over this system? And one line of investigation was banking was cooperative banking. And I was looking at setting up a digital cooperative bank on the lines of, well, there's a couple of them in the UK here called Monzo, Starling, Revolut is another one. Wise is an example in the US. I'm sure there are other examples, but basically taking the advantages of digital only banks, very low cost models, a very high quality UX customer experience, and using turning that to the advantage of a cooperative bank, which is great. You know, it was a good idea. There's nothing wrong with it. People said I could do it. I looked at the technology. It's all doable. You can now stack the technology quite easily. You can set these things up actually pretty quickly. But there's two problems. Number one, becoming a bank is really complicated and difficult in regulatory terms. Also, you have to raise a ton of capital, which is very difficult when you can't raise venture capital because a co-op can't offer the same rates of return that a private venture would offer. That's one big problem. The other big problem is... So you set up a co-op. Is it really going to make that much of a difference? You know, do credit unions make that much of a difference or do people using them, the customers of them, essentially treat them like another form of bank that you have an account mm-hmm. with a credit union or a cooperative bank and you treat it basically as your bank account with Chase or Bank of America? Your relationship with it is essentially the same. You have a mortgage with a bank or a credit union. What, what incentivizes you to have it with one institution or the other is basically the rate of interest. Where do you get the best deal? And in Britain, we have a mutual that's 10% of the retail banking market, but it essentially behaves like a for-profit bank and its customers treat it as a for-profit bank. So they're not really exerting that agency. And it goes to your point about what should a credit union really do? And I began to think that a co-op isn't really going to, a new co-op bank isn't really going to change the system. What will cause the systemic change that we're looking for? That, that recapturing of agency. And that's that's why I came to you, Doug, actually, to ask you that question in, in very general yeah. terms. Huh. And just a hypothesis for you, one of the avenues I'm currently investigating is the payment system, which is essentially owned by for-profit card companies, payment companies, and the banks themselves. And you know, when you make a cashless payment, essentially the money is ripped off by these different companies before it reaches the merchant's account the vendor's account. And they're taking up to 5% of that payment as as revenue for themselves. What would happen if the public or the a cooperative owned that payment system instead? Isn't that a better way of saving the public money, saving the customer money, saving the merchant money, but also owning the system? So we begin to recapture the money system bit by bit. That's one hypothesis. Right. That's certainly, I mean, that in theory is what credit unions are supposed to be doing, that the interest is going back to the collective. And then after the operating costs are taken out, you get a dividend at the end of each year. And what I proposed to the credit unions was that rather than trying to make that dividend as large as possible, what if they looked at trying to make that dividend as small as possible. In other words, to take as little friction. And one thing I was thinking was, what if as an advantage, that what if we're trying to do is optimize for the wealth and health of the community itself, of the community that's in the bank? And so what, what if we charge two different rates of interest? What if there's one rate of interest if you're spending your loan outside the network, but a lower rate of interest if you're spending it on fellow merchants, fellow businesses inside? So if I use the money to to pay you to tutor my kid in algebra, I'm going to pay back much less, a much lower rate because I've kept it in network. Yeah, I like that idea. I mean, that was the only one I could really think no, of. No, it's a good Something idea. Something like that, or crowdfunding from inside the network versus outside, and having just sort of better rates, and so everybody's incentivized to get the network effect or the the bounded effect of of circular local circular economics. Yeah, and that, you know, one benefit of that is it promotes locality, uh, the sort of localization of services. It promotes, I mean. 
there are several cooperative banks in the UK that exist in order to support the local economy where they exist. So there's one in Wales, there's one in Southwest England, et cetera, et cetera, which are traditionally relatively deprived areas. And these co-ops exist to try to promote and energize economic activity in those areas. So that's one benefit of what you're talking about. But what I'm groping about for, and I'm not sure there is an easy answer for it, is what is the systemic change to recapture money? And I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on alternative currencies, because that's a, a rabbit hole that I've gone down to, is you know, this proposition that the fiat currency, the dollar, is basically causing destruction of the planet because it is based on debt. Because as you know, but lots of people don't know, money actually comes into being as debt, that a money bank literally creates money when it gives you a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a loan to build a business. It literally writes that money into existence at that point. Great business to be in banking, by the way. Great business because you literally make money into existence. And what that does is create lots of debt. So money is created as debt. So we become more and more indebted. All of us become individually more indebted. House prices go up. We pay more and more for houses, houses, et cetera, et cetera. And what that does in turn, it creates a drive for greater wages, profits, and returns in the future because we have to pay off all of this debt, this ever-increasing debt. And what that does is damages the planet because growth, as long as it's based on carbon, is damaging the atmosphere, is destroying our planet. So if you get a debt creation as the root cause of all of this, you get a, this problem that is is very, very systemic to the whole nature of money. It creates debt, it, create, it destroys the planet. How do we get at that? We get rid of debt creation of money, or what's called credit creation of money, perhaps through having an alternative currency. But I'm still struggling with actually how that would work. Bitcoin is not an alternative currency. It's not used as a means of exchange. Most of crypto has just become a speculative asset, a pyramid scheme by another name, and carbon destructive as well in the case of Bitcoin. But what would a plausible alternative currency that got us out of the credit creation cycle, what would that look like? Is it plausible? Could we actually do it? I mean, I think it is. There's a funny old... um there's a Three Stooges bit, I don't know if you've seen it, where it's like one of them gets a dollar and then, oh, but you owed me that and you owed me that. And they keep passing it around. You know, it's like a five minute gag on who owed money to whom and the one dollar keeps moving back and forth. And what it made me realize is that the actual passing back and forth of the money is ridiculous. It's a matter of accounting for it at the end. So again, if they would have to all be members of an institution, but if we didn't actually have to issue money and pass it around, but rather kept track of who's doing what for whom. And then at the end of the year, you know, one person, oh, you give 20, Joe gives $20 to the pizzeria and everybody's debts are solved. (laughs) So it's like one little transaction at the end. So then what you do is rather than even having currency, you just have a tally of who's done what for whom. Yes. And if someone gets, oh, look, you've been taking a bit too much, you're going to have to um, do a little more work or or it looks like last resort, you're going to have to actually pay somebody before the end of the year in order to yes. make the, the books work. That's called mutual credit. That's a mutual credit scheme. And there are yeah, organizations that. <laughs> that do that. There's a big one right? in Switzerland, I think it is, called VIA, which is, of course, German for we that does precisely that and is, is ex- existed for several decades. The issue there is, is, of course, you can't use debt exchange, debt cancellation to buy a coffee with or to buy a computer from outside the network. You're limited right. to the network itself. And that network tends to be local. There's another one, I think, in Sicily where they're doing a similar thing. And there too, the network is essentially a local network, partly because it relies on trust between the network participants, trust that is forged or founded in the locality of the enterprises that take part in it. But what you say is totally plausible and it is done. It works. It is a form of alternative currency. It's just a ledger instead of a dollar or a token. It's just a ledger where you cancel out each other's debts on a mutual basis. So that's totally doable. The question is, can you take that to scale? Could you plausibly do that at scale across an entire economy? 
And that has yet to be shown. Right. Well, then the bigger question is, can you do anything at scale without corruption? And will we be able to do anything at scale for very much longer anyway? You know, as a fellow member of Extinction, as a, as a pin-wearing member of Extinction Rebellion, I'm optimistic about the human spirit, but I'm not optimistic about the longevity of our global supply chains or almost anything yeah. that's happening at scale. Yeah. Um, so... No, I mean, I, when you said about coffee, I was thinking, wow, I wonder if I will be able to drink coffee for the rest of my natural life. Hmm. You know, I have some question about that. I don't mean that I couldn't get it down my throat. I mean, the delivery of coffee beans may not be plausible no. in another 20 or 30 years. No, and it's getting harder to grow coffee beans. I was reading about how they're having to move higher and higher up the mountain slopes in places where they used to grow coffee beans in the valley in order to grow the coffee beans. It's getting harder and harder. So, yeah, it's a legitimate question. I know. I did a thing. I... I was invited to Vermont to speak to, um, it was kind of a Vermont sort of government business commerce meeting of, of a lot of the business people in, or uh, what are they called, Chamber of Commerce kind of of Vermont, to talk to them about what businesses can people go into now that the maple syrup maple trees yeah. are not going to be producing maple syrup for another decade. They're no. losing because of the climate. Yeah. <laughs> what are, and I was like, oh my God. I mean, and to think that, that we don't accept climate change as a nation, but the Chamber of Commerce is still having a meeting about yeah. what do we do as business. So the reality is we're moving on, you know? Yeah. French champagne growers are buying land in England of all places you know they must be desperate to buy land in england to grow to you know grow champagne grapes but that's what they're doing because it's getting too hot the climate is not reliable enough in france i mean it's scary it's really scary but what this speaks of i mean what you you know what led you to that thought was this idea of localization mm. localizing the economy and and indeed localizing our governance through participatory systems at level that we can grasp, which is the local level, our town, our commune, our village, our region. And that's, you know, where local currency schemes, for example, are much more plausible, whether it's a debt cancellation scheme of the type you've described, or actually a local currency. So like uh, in Bristol, in Southwest England, they had a thing called the Bristol Pound. There's one in uh, South right. West London, in fact, called the Brixton Pound, where currency is issued. And the point of it is to encourage the local economies to is that the pound, that currency would only be valid in that locality. And it encourages local economic activity. So these these trust-based schemes of currency become much more plausible at the local level. And if we want to build local resilience to survive the ecological collapse, then perhaps that's one way of thinking about it. You know, that we are right. going to have to think about more devolved systems of government and of self-sufficiency if we're to survive what's what's coming for us. I don't entirely buy into that theory because there isn't enough food for us all to farm locally or organically. There isn't enough right. land for us to do that. Britain imports half of its food from overseas. Maybe it's more plausible in the States. I don't know because you guys produce so much more food, but um, it doesn't work here, for instance. So this idea of right. you know, ultimate fragmented devolved communities all looking after themselves, I don't, I don't think it entirely works. Right. You know, some, some, right. Some uh, anarcho-syndicalist dreamscape uh, <laughs> may not be plausible, but if it's syndicated enough, then it kind of could be. So there's the wheat and grain kibbutz of Iowa, you know, that yes, they are locally governed and anarchic and, and for 80, 90% of their stuff, but they ship you know, grain to the electronics one so they can have iPhones or yeah. <laughs> whatever they're going to get from, from a different one. Um, and that, that could 
kind of work. It's funny. I know there's problems with anarcho-syndicalism as a, as a movement, so maybe we wouldn't call it that, or we'll get Mondragon to help organize it as a series of uh, kind of worker-own cooperative kibbutz. Yeah. I mean, it's even what folks are talking about as game B. When you look at through all of the psychedelic systems theory, finally, they're talking about, oh, you mean local communities that are making stuff and trading with other ones? That sounds fine. Yeah. I don't need big words. I don't need big words for it. No, and and anarchist theorists have have thought this through. I mean, they have thought about how to take localism to scale. And one answer is is the theories of Murray Bookchin, reiterated, in fact, by a Kurdish liberation leader called Abdullah Ojalan. And the title of these ideas is called Democratic Confederalism, which is basically Mm. how you take local communal assemblies, which are participatory, which make decisions about the stuff that matters to them, how do you get those to scale up and take decisions that need to be made at scale, like a road system or a factory or something like that? And there are ways of doing it. You offer representatives up through the system, up to a pyramid of system, and those representatives, this is different, I hasten to add, from representative democracy where we elect a tiny number of people to take decisions for the rest of us. But these representatives can only take decisions that have already been discussed at the local level. They must represent those decisions and they are recallable if they don't represent those decisions fairly. So you get a system of true bottom-up democracy. So that's one way of answering the governance problem. And the cooperative problem can be answered at scale as well, as Mondragon has demonstrated. Mondragon is a huge conglomerate of Spanish cooperatives. And the evidence, the empirical evidence, is that cooperatives work much better in an ecology of other cooperatives where there is a degree of mutuality between them. They're not just competitive with each other as in the current system, the dog-eat-dog system we have today. So these, these things are totally plausible. They are doable. This isn't empty dreams. Right. No, they're doable. But they, they preclude a lot of resources being spent on colonialism, right? <laughs> You're not going to have energy. There's no colonialist surplus, no. Right. You can't just go invade someone else. You won't have enough surplus to to create a military, at least other than a small defensive one. You can't go take over other places and enslave their people and ship them back. No. You know, because you're working a little bit closer to the bone. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And all your returns are distributed. They're not accumulated in the hands of a few who then throw them around exerting power over other people. Right. And indeed, there's a place which I'm sure you know of where all of this is being put into practice, which is in a corner of northwest Syria called Rojava, where these ideas mm. are actually being implemented of, of bottom-up self-government and cooperative ecological enterprises. And they are demonstrating that it can be done at scale. It's not terribly well known. Not many people go there because Syria is a country at war still, and Turkey, our NATO ally, has been attacking this democratic corner of Syria, and so it's not very safe to visit it, and so we don't get a lot of reporting about it, and it doesn't really fit into the narratives of what conventional media think the Middle East is about, which is ISIS and extremism and dictatorship and yada, yada, yada. Right. Or, or on the other end, you get Neom or something, you know, a, a giant multi-trillion dollar. Uh, it sounds like a kind of nightmare, Neom, I have to say. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is. It's, a, it's a basically a giant apocalypse bunker for, you know, wealthy uh, Saudi Arabians and, you know, it's like, a, I don't know, Dubai of the desert. But these experiments are, I would argue, they're so deeply threatening to nation states and the powers that be that there's there's i would think there's a strong interest in undermining their yes sustainability yes there's certainly a strong interest in questioning their plausibility i mean this is the the struggle that anarchist ideas have always faced is oh it's totally ridiculous that people will govern themselves they're going to fight you know the natural state of human beings is a Hobbesian state of violence and chaos, a war of all against all, and the, the only way to prevent it is top-down authority. And that is deeply steeped into us in all sorts of ways, not only from what governments say and the way they present themselves as the monopoly of coercion and violence, but also culturally through The Walking Dead, where when authority collapses, we get violent groups opposing one another all the time. We don't get cooperation. And in fact, 
what we have seen when authority collapses, we do tend to see cooperation and mutuality rather than competition and conflict. And wonderful author called Rebecca Solnet has written about precisely this, uh, called A Paradise Built in Hell. Her book tells multiple stories about what happens when authority actually collapses, that people tend to cooperate with each other. New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina was one example. There are many others. And so this basic assumption that we need authority to control us and to stop us killing each other is basically wrong. And yet that assumption needs to be perpetuated by the people who benefit from the people in control. I used to be in government. I know exactly how it feels to be one of the elite who's in control. feels great. And if you'd said to me, the mass can take care of affairs for themselves, I would have said, how stupid are you? You know, of course they can't. People can't be trusted. That's, That's, you know, what people like me would have said and people like me still do say. It's interesting. It's a... It's because I've been working on a I've been working on a comic book and I'm trying to think about the future in it and society breaking down and small groups needing to defend each other or themselves from warlords, you know, driving around with with jeeps with uh, machine guns on them makes for more interesting comics than a bunch of, <laughs> oh, look at these sustainable cooperative <laughs> kibbutzes and but that's a shame, right? And that's that first off, not to blame comic books, but maybe reality is more complex than a comic book. You know, maybe we have those possibilities. But I know everyone and their sister that I know, they were all buying guns. I mean, not just, you know, first aid supplies and and meals ready to eat, but actual weapons because the first thing people are thinking is how am I going to defend myself from the others? But you look back to the depression and yeah, there were outlaws around, but what you saw in the depression in America were cooperatives, you, you, you yeah. know, sharing food. I mean, yeah. alternative currencies. Boy, did people come together quickly. You know, yeah. what was Steinbeck really looking at, you know? Yeah. Well, we're terrified of each other, aren't we? I mean, we don't trust each other yeah. because we've been decommunitized. Our communities have been destroyed and we are alienated from each other. And that's where we see political polarization coming from. People are desperate for answers, so they tend to extremes, to the big guy who says, or rather the very little guy who says, I will stand up for you. So that's where you know America's political crisis is, is arguably coming from. But that state of alienation breeds distrust. It breeds fear of the other. So no wonder people are buying guns. I would buy a gun. You need to build up the habits of community cooperation and mutuality slowly. This isn't just going to happen. Although, as I've just said, Rebecca Solnit argues that these forms of human cooperation do spring up when authority collapses, despite our suspicions of each other. We overcome those suspicions and we cooperate. But in the current dispensation, I think this needs to happen more slowly. We need to, anarchists I know, say that it starts with ourselves. We need to build up modules and nodes of cooperation, whether it's at the workplace, whether it's in a new enterprise we established, a bakery or a school, or in how we govern our affairs together. We start slowly, we start locally, and we build this up. And it can be done. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I've been talking about it as, you know, putting the social back into socialism. I don't care about the ism. The social is the prerequisite for these cooperative models to happen, you know, and it is trust. And our digital brothers and sisters are so busy attempting to replace trust, you know, Mm. (laughs) or to substitute for trust with something else. Mm. And it's like, well, maybe for some giant scaled crypto monster, you want to replace or substitute for trust, but for anything to actually work, no, no, we have to engender and rebuild the muscles of trust. Mm. And that's where for 20, 30 years, I've been rejecting, you know, my own love of the arts and Mm. fiction and all where that's where my real passion lied because it seemed like things are too dire mm. for me to be wasting my time writing plays or mm. uh, fiction for people. But now I'm realizing, oh no, it's the walking dead that's training people to hate, e- mm. to, to fear each other. We we need alternative stories for kids to be raised on that teach them that, oh no, this, <laughs> this yeah. is actually way more fun to cooperate. 
I agree. We need to stimulate the collective imagination. That starts with our own imagination. We need to start imagining utopias of a better society because I think there's a wonderful Oscar Wilde quote that I can't quote back to you, but it's words to the effect of, you know, without that vision of utopia, where are we supposed to go? Where is our hope going to reside? We give up without that vision of something better. And I think people like us, radicals, progressives, whatever you want to call us, have to an extent given up that utopian exercise. We were suspicious, correctly so, of utopia, because in the 20th century, utopians were Nazis. They were communists of the worst kind. And they discredited the idea of utopia. But I think we now need to recreate that idea. And what's beautiful about it, it's not a universalist utopia. Each of us can create our own. You know, and I think mm. what anarchists reject is universalist utopias of me imposing my design on you and everybody else. It's just my design. It's my imagination of what could be better. And I bring that to you humbly and honestly and say, let's co-create utopia that blends yours with mine. What would that look like? Mm-hmm. Let's start on this journey together. And there is no end state to it. Anarchists strongly believe that the process is the point. It's about praxis, as they call it. We're not perfect. Humans cannot create perfection. We can't create a perfect utopia. But in that journey, as long as we practice certain principles in that journey of mutuality, of equal power, the rejection of hierarchy, etc., then that journey itself becomes the point. The means are the ends, as Gandhi would put it. I know, as opposed to where everyone else is. You know, let's relocate these 20,000 Bedouins and then we can begin our renewable, ecotopic (laughs) city. Just a little pain. Yeah, we never get to utopia that way either. What I like about it as a philosophy is it's, it's humility about the nature of the human. For one thing that we exist through each other, and this is, I think, for me, cardinal, that we only actually exist in relationship to each other. This is why solitary confinement is such torture, because it denies our humanity, because our humanity lies in relationships. There's an analogy in quantum physics that particles only exist in relationship to each other. The wonderful quantum physicist Carlo Rovelli talks about this, that actually reality is relationships. And I think when you center relationships in a politics, in an economics, you end up with something potentially very beautiful. And it's also built on humility that I don't know the answers. I don't have a universal theory of what is right. All I have is what I can offer myself in terms of my own behavior and my own relationship with you and what I can build with my own two hands. And, you know, let's get to work together. It's not offering a socialist utopia. It's not offering, you know, the the dictatorship of the proletariat, nor is it offering a capitalist paradise where we're all much better off. You know, the thing that capitalism and communism have in common is that their future ideals, their utopias are always in the future. They're never today. And they always imply sacrifice and cost for somebody today in order to get to that future utopia, which is never reached. Anarchism offers our utopia a humble one through our actions right now. Right. It's funny. It's the first thing I ever really wrote was a tiny little manifesto on on the well, you know, the bulletin board back in the day before I wrote my first book and it was called Renaissance Now. And I was like, could we, rather than looking for sort of apocalypse now or revolution in the future, what if we right now we begin the, the process of rebirth and in every moment? And, uh, It was funny. It was kind of a techno-optimism, but I think I've returned to it in a much more humble way. In other words, it's not Renaissance now, the world and us and Japan and everyone are going to have a, you know, Gundam robot revolution or something. But (laughs) it's rather as we start to recognize the tiny moments. I mean, that was the beautiful thing about Occupy when people say, what is it for? What is it for? I kept saying, no, this is a new normative state. Mm -hmm. It's about just occupying reality in this Mm moment moment is enough to begin a process of unwinding that's going to take a whole lot longer. Yeah, a pretentious way of putting that is prefigurative politics, which is you start to act out the reality that you wish to see, that you start to embody that reality yourself. Mm. Rather than preaching about it and telling others to do it or waiting to vote for it, you actually start doing it. And 
that's exactly your description of Occupy. Occupy began a different kind of politics, a participatory horizontalist politics where anybody could speak and where nobody was entitled to speak for the whole, which is why there were no spokespeople for Occupy, which was you know, a disadvantage as well as a good thing. Disadvantage in an individualistic culture that expects there to be individuals we can centre on when we're talking about a movement or an idea. But it was all about the mass and the mass operating together and forming its own mind. And that meant diversity and eclecticism. And that's that surely is more reflective of the actual human condition. Yeah. And it's interesting because now in most of my sort of academic and activist circles, people say, oh, well, you know, Occupy failed. I'm like, Occupy didn't fail. No, <laughs> this this didn't. is Occupy. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're totally right. I mean, it, it, it succeeded in very conventional political terms by putting inequality on the political agenda. Obama only started talking about inequality after Occupy. You know, it made it possible, it opened the Overton window of what was possible to discuss in politics. That's one very clear success. God knows that's important enough. But the other thing is I think it demonstrated that there is a huge mass of people who want change, who are not satisfied with the status quo. And that's not just the Democrats or the Republicans or this politician or that politician, they're dissatisfied with the system and the system needs changing. And it began a process of examining that system in multitudes of different ways. And I think networks of people have gone away from Occupy and have started to do things. The the big example is strike debt, which you know about, which is movement Mm. to cancel student debt, medical debt, and the crisis of indebtedness in America. That was born in Occupy, a group of people Mm-hmm. Uh, started that movement, uh, you know, literally four or five people who met together in yeah, Occupy. Tom Gokey, Astro Astra, Taylor, exactly, yeah. all of those guys. So something epic and national began at Occupy, but it wasn't only that. Occupy Sandy, the movement of mutual aid that followed Superstorm, whatever we call it, Hurricane Sandy. I called it Hurricane Sandy because it sure as hell felt like a hurricane in New York City. The mm. cooperative effort bringing help to people after Hurricane Sandy was an effort of people who knew each other because of Occupy. And I I think this will happen in waves. I think there will be another financial crisis. The financial system is inherently unstable and vulnerable to crisis. It overextends itself over and over again. We can talk more detail about that, but there will be another financial crisis and there will be another Occupy. It won't be called Occupy. It will be something else. And that may lead to this kind of systemic change that we need. I think we are at a moment of what Thomas Kuhn would call paradigm shift, where the inadequacies of the current paradigm are more and more clear to people, whether it's climate destruction or social fragmentation and inequality. And those inadequacies are now well known. It used to be only a minority of people talked about them. Now you read about them in the Financial Times, people talking about the poly crisis and whatnot. That's become conventional thinking. But what yet isn't there is what is the new paradigm? And I think it lies in these things that we've been talking about, cooperation, participation, horizontalism, the absence of hierarchy, etc. I think these are the elements of the necessary new paradigm, but that is yet to emerge. But it will arguably take another crisis, another Occupy for it to emerge. Right. And hopefully we'll be ready. I mean, and let's just keep talking more, but um, we'll be ready with um, some tools, mechanisms for people to employ. Yeah. At least we'll be ready with the ideas and then elaborating those ideas will be up to people, you know, which is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to prescribe a, a f- specific manifesto that needs to be fulfilled. You know, it's enough to say these ideas are possible. Go away and do it in your own way that is yours, that you feel proud of, that speaks to your own desires and motivations. That's the heart of it. It is. Let's end it with that. This is a, a good beginning of a conversation. I hope not not the last, but the first among many. I would enjoy that, Doug. I'm definitely at, at your service, in your thrall and at your service to whatever we can do. Because I don't know how much time I've got. I've got left, much less anybody else. If not now, when? Right? That's what I feel. I mean, like you, I've given up my dreams of writing screenplays and spy novels. And, you know, instead I feel the the onus is on us to build this new system. We've talked a lot about the ideas. Now we've got to go out and build the exemplars that people can follow and people can be inspired by the lighthouses that will guide the way for for other people. 
and now's the time to do that there isn't any time to waste right well thank you and thank you for being on team human our guest today was carney ross you can find out about him at carneyross.com or get his book the leaderless revolution Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.